Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we're going to look at mysticism. What does it mean to be a mystic? My guest is James Tunney, a man of many talents who came to Albuquerque from Gothenburg, Sweden, although he's Irish. He's a qualified barrister and has lectured all over the world on the topic of law but he is also author of a fascinating book of scholarship and poetry called The Mystical Accord, Sutras to Suit Our Times, Lines for Spiritual Evolution. Welcome, James. Thank you very much for that uh, introduction. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm, I'm delighted that you uh, have come from so far to be with me. And it's fantastic that I brought the snow as well from Gothenburg <laughs> to Albuquerque. We had a lovely walk in the snow this morning, and now we're going to talk about mysticism. Yes, I'm looking forward to that. Mysticism, uh, well, to begin with, it means many different things to, to different people. Well, when my interest in mysticism uh, as a as an intellectual topic grew in recent years um, so I come from a legal background so obviously my academic uh, interest and in scholarship was interested uh, in law although that that brought me to contiguous subjects if you if you think of Oliver Wendell Holmes for example who was a uh, in the mystical or the metaphysical club um, with William James uh, he said that if your path is to law, it should take you through a whole load of other disciplines around it. I, I believe in that. So when I came to mysticism and I became personally interested, I began to look, after I, I began to write the poetry or in conjunction, at the range of views and academic scholarship and various views about the nature of mysticism and to revisit mystic mystics that I had been interested in and spiritual traditions and disciplines that always fascinated me. So I, I began to try and, and people say, well, what is mysticism? And it's a difficult notion to define. And then we find there's a load of different academic disciplines. And within the disciplines, there's various views. Some people argue for one view, other people argue for another view. So I said, okay, well, let's start at the start. And the analogy, I, I, I think that that's what lawyers do. They try and look at the range of scholarship, the range of information, and look at the essential foundational uh, aspects. Uh, so, and I, I think that's important. So, I, I, I'm not claiming that I'm an academic in that discipline, so I have respect for them. But for me, mysticism has been about the, the, the essential question, the ubiquitous question, the meaning of life, and, and what is the meaning of life. More specifically, it's about a distrust that a certain type of people have about the nature of reality. This has been in all spiritual traditions, in all cultures. Uh, uh, there's been a suggestion and a, a, a firm view to the effect that what we see around us and what we perceive with the senses is not the full extent of reality, or in some sense is not a true reflection of, of reality. 
So they have sought for various means through spiritual processes to access new realities. And we can see that in the shamanic traditions, we can see it in the monotheistic religions, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, we can see it in all the oriental philosophies, we can see it in Buddhism, we can see it in Taoism, and there is a unifying view. So the first thing, it's, it's about attempting to access a new reality which is beyond uh, this reality. And when people do that, they often become skeptical about things we take for granted, about time and space, for example. But the key driving force for mysticism, it seems to me, is a struggle against existential despair. Why are, we, why are we here? What's the meaning of life? What are we doing here? And a constant search that people have for something else, some explanation. Now, usually it, it leads to gods or God or different, different, uh, different super possibilities. Um, but the phenomenon of mysticism is the same. There's a similar structure in all the traditions. And this is reflected in the perennial philosophy and ideas that there has been a universal philosophy or in all different cultures, they come to the same results. So, um, so mysticism is about access to a different reality. Uh, associate with that is an idea of the loss of self to find a higher self. Uh, sometimes it, ca it can involve a distortion of time and space, a transcendence of time and space. Uh, sometimes, or a fundamental idea as well, is that mysticism is about access to a sense of unity, that through a mystical process you can f have a sense of, of unity with, with nature, with the world, with your fellow beings or with spirits in a wider sense, not just about people who are living. So we see certain elements. The word mysticism, uh, if we, again, if we look at the etymology of it, as a lawyer would do, where does this word come from? We see that there are certain elements, usually going back to, to the Greek ideas, which imply, for example, that we're dealing with mysteries. And the, the, the link between mysticism and mystery is very, very close. Uh, it also implies some sense of initiation. So initiation is usually into some kind of secret doctrine or a higher order doctrine. And those are usually associated with accessing this extra reality. Um, it could be simply about an inner path to enlightenment, the person that goes off to a cave to try and understand the meaning of life, the Buddha sitting under the tree, the Taoist going into the mountains, or people in the home beginning to think of what's happening. It could come from uh, mystical events. So we know that the near-death experience is a classic mystical event. Now, if you have a mystical event, it doesn't mean that you will become a mystic, but the way I would explain it is there is a certain cycle or a spiral. You may have an event which sparks off your interest in spirituality, for example, and it makes it very, very personal. So we know that people who have been through a near-death experience, they come back with a greater sense of spirituality, a greater sense of their responsibility to other human beings and other beings, including animals, uh, a greater sense of the impact of their conduct, a less, they're less interested in material goods or material philosophies, and it, it gives them a sense of comfort and peace. Sometimes the mystical quest is called the peace that passed un, uh, all understanding. Mm -hmm. It's a sense that you get a, a sense of peace. Old people in Ireland used to talk about being at peace, having a sense of peace, and it was very important for them. The 
if we if we think about it as an effort to combat existential despair, we see that people who have gone on a mystic journey are not afraid of death. They embrace life, and they don't always they don't always retreat to a cave and stay there. What they do. And if you look at the Christian mystics in particular, there's plenty of evidence from people like Evelyn Underhill, who wrote a great book uh, on mysticism, yeah. uh, and uh, you're familiar with, of course. And she explained that the mystics start off with this questioning of reality, and they go ser in search of answers. But then they come back to society with something to offer. They have learned from their experience. So that's not the end. The cave is not the end of the of the journey, uh, and, and that that aspect is important. Uh, we see negative definitions of mysticism, so we have to be careful. But there are plenty of people who say, "Oh, mysticism is something that happened in California. It's a new age phenomenon. It's hippies smoking dope, and they're not interested in the real world." That's that's not true. That that that's a caricature uh, of what the mystical experience is. I think. Ayn Rand, for example, would give, uh, give a, a hostile view of, or definition of mysticism, mm -hmm. and she would include all religion in, in, in mysticism, as far as I remember from her discussions. So, um, so mysticism is about that spiritual quest. It's about a finding, well, one, identifying that you're, you're, you are a spiritual being, and then seeking to evolve as, uh, as a spiritual being, because there's a lot of focus on natural selection, on the scientific view of evolution, but actually I believe that our highest quest is to evolve mm -hmm. spiritually. So you want to evolve spiritually, where do you look to? Well, if you're a Catholic, you should look to the Catholic mystical tradition, because otherwise the rituals may take out the real spiritual engagement and may become uh, religion by rote, for example, and miss which most mainstream religions seem to be. There, That's there the seems to be a kind of tension in any given religion between the, the orthodox piety uh, versus the uh, mystical uh, path within that faith. That's right. And if you look at the origin of all religions, we see the mystic is there. So it's a very strange phenomenon that the religions are based on what I would define as a mystical quest and a, and a mystical revelation. Mm. Revelation is another feature associated with mysticism. The idea that we can gain knowledge which is superior to existing rational methods mm. through inspired ideas. Now that that's a, 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 a thought process that scientists have great difficulty with, despite the fact that most great inventors were open to spiritual influence. We know that uh, a lot of Newton, for example, was very uh, interested in the occult and, and in mysticism and in alchemy. So strangely, scientists say, no, well, that's nothing got to do with us. So there's a similar literal mindset from people in science as there is in religion. They share a great commonality. And there's a strange paradox that we hear, we've heard young people hear a lot of debates about say, for example, Richard Dawkins and the selfish gene. So what they do is they get a literalist scientist who espouses scientism against a literalist religious person. So what they're arguing about has nothing got to do with the spiritual quest. It's got to do with two versions of very narrow-minded literalist view, because in many senses, what, for example, certain Christians espouse is not justified by evidence from uh, Christian doctrine, from what 
what's the what Jesus Christ said. So they invent all kinds of all kinds of doctrines and dogma, which don't have any root in in, in the original text. Um, and that's there is a phenomenon that you notice that the originators in the field come along, and then the less original people come along. They don't have the same motivation that drove the first, and then the then it freezes and it fossilizes. And it can be very difficult for people in the tradition to see the li a living spirit. But uh, it's clear, and, and if you look at great perennial philosophers, for example, like Syed Al Professor Syed Al Nasser, who has written uh, a, n a number of books, a, a great many texts on this. So he's an Islamic scholar, but he looks at the similarities between the spiritual quest in Islam, in Christianity, in Judaism, and he, they gain strength from each other because there is a parallel structure and instead of seeking for the vision on doctrinal basis to seek to to fight over uh, narrow and, and fine distinctions uh, the, the perennial philosophy as advocated by Aldous Huxley in his book for example uh, indicates that there is a parallel process we gain by looking at the other tra traditions and if you look at uh, what some of the uh, the Buddhist teachers say, they say, well, if you're born a Catholic, you should look within your own tradition and explore that fully before you go looking for some exotic oriental thing. That, that, that's important because they learn off the traditions as well. And as one great Buddhist teacher said, um, why go uh, why go look for footprints in the forest when you have the elephant at home? So I think that's a very good metaphor. Well, you have suggested that one of the key core concepts uh, involved in mysticism is to recognize yourself as a spiritual being. Yeah, that, this is this is a primary question. You may find it difficult, and there may be a bit of a different emphasis in the United States because we know that the United States has always been a religious country. Uh, and if we go back, of course, to the Native Americans, they're the most, they have the greatest spiritual tradition in the world. And in the future, in the United States, I believe that the, the peoples of this land, the first peoples, the Navajo, who are, who are not uh, far from here, uh, and I had the great fortune to, to stay on a reservation with the Ojibwes, mm -hmm. the Chippewa in Canada. Um, they will be teaching us in the future because they have retained spiritual traditions. But then with Christianity uh, in uh, the United States, we have great traditions of Quakerism, for example, which, which Quakerism is an interesting uh, religion because in Quakerism, the, there's a direct link between the spirit of the individual and God. So they accept the reality and of direct inspiration without an intervening institutional structure. Mm. So the problem is often with institutions. And I also think that we're going to go through a period of great skepticism uh, about institutions. So we have had, in a number of different contexts, we have institutions which create a barrier between a, a person and an experience and they can make it more difficult instead of facilitating. So. Well, there, there's a strong sense, I think, that the mystical quest is an individual quest, the, a hero's journey that a person ultimately has to go on in, uh, on their own. For example, Evelyn Underhill, who, whom you cited earlier, writes about the dark night of the soul. Yes. The dark night of the soul uh, is, is, is a specific element uh, 
in in the spiritual quest as she she notes certain phases in the tradition and often I suppose the analogy is the darkest hour is before the dawn it's it's mm -hmm. a similar similar uh, principle but on the que the quest is not is not a happy quest in a way it's a it's a difficult quest uh, it requires discipline perseverance focus willpower but it is an individual quest and this this is where a conflict happens we have in a number of issues if you look we're not going to talk about politics, but in the, the political context, you can think of as well. Uh, but in a number of contexts, there is a conflict between the individual and the group. And of course, we need networks to facilitate the individual. But there's a difference between a network which is facilitated in a community uh, and a group which requires you to give up your sovereignty to it. That that, in my view, is wrong because even if you're you're um, a Catholic, you need to evolve within your own tradition, for example, uh, or or, or uh, within Islam. You have to look at the great traditions that's that's there for the benefits of that personal individual journey. And for people that have no religion, my point is that there's similar processes that are there that can help when you say, well, okay, where do I go from here? Do I take ayahuasca? Do I take DMT, for example, that's a big debate. You can hear, uh, I, I don't know whether you ever listened to Joe Rogan on a, as a podcast, but he has a fascination uh, with uh, DMT, mm -hmm. for example. So I'm, be, I'm yeah. thinking about young people looking at that and saying, oh, okay, here is the answer, the spirit mo molecule. I take this and I have it. Well, I'm a bit skeptical about it. I'm not saying that that doesn't work. And I'm certainly not saying that if you take it in the context of traditional indigenous knowledge with the uh, shaman, for example, in, 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 the, in uh, South America, I'm not saying, I'm not criticizing that at all. But there's a difference if you're taking it with people that have no experience of the culture where it comes from. Mm. And if you have had no uh, spiritual path, and especially if you don't even believe that you have a spirit, yeah. because you may you may encounter things that you're not able to handle, for example. So that requires that you do the work, that there is a process of evolution mm -hmm. before you get there. So it's a bit, uh, we were talking earlier about Jack and the Beanstalk. Yeah. The, uh, if you think about the, the story of Jack and the Beanstalk, he gets the, he gets the magic beans of the old lady who's really the goddess on the way to to sell the cows at the market and his mother will be mad with this so she flings the beans out the window and then we get this great big stalk he climbs the stalk and in the end he gets the treasures that are really his father's there's a number of ways we can look at that there's a big giant he has to contend with you could you could look at it in one perspective and say well this represents the classic spiritual journey you have to search for the gold you have to go through the great journey, the great difficulties to recover the gold, because gold is is traditionally a symbol for spiritual, spiritual and mystical, um, mystical uh, peace. As the rose, for example, is another symbol, and the rose garden is another symbol of the, the mystic spirit. So, uh, in that sense, recovering the gold is a metaphor in, in some ways for the, the spiritual quest, or. You could also interpret it from another spiritual way and say, well, this is, this is a bit like the problem with if you're taking certain hallucinogenic or enteogenic drugs or mushrooms, if you have no spiritual tradition. Because 
you will encounter monsters and they could be damaging mm -hmm. to you. You may not get the gold by that route. So uh, the point is that if you begin to think in a spiritual way, you may come to, to, to different results. But certainly, it has to be an individual request uh, or, or quest, and that reflects, mm -hmm. I, I believe that Joseph Campbell's identification of the structure of myth is really about the process of spiritual evolution. It's really mm -hmm. reflecting the model that is there. The, well, you're bringing up Jack and the Beanstalk as yeah. an example suggests that in children's fairy tales, a lot of mystical uh, wisdom is embedded. My belief is that people talk about myth and they say, well, here's myth. And they say, what's the benefit of myth? Well, we can create a good story. And it's all about storytelling. Okay, that, that's certainly true. There's no, there's, there's no doubt about that. But, and, and it's interesting if you, if you read people like Christopher Booker, who has t said that even that structure of story has changed in the last couple of hundred years. You won't mm -hmm. get your happy ending. The hero is not necessarily a hero. And that is a mirror, a spiritual mirror of contemporary society yes. in, many, many, uh, in many respects. But you know that Bruno Beetleheim's book, The Uses of Enchantment, mm -hmm. for example, um, if you look at Hansel and Gretel, it's an horrific story. I mean, yes, you know, with, with every cannibalism. And, uh, I, I, love, I won't go through all the details in case of children <laughs> watching. But yeah. it's a brutal. It would be banned mm -hmm. if, if you told it in, in its proper form. It's really, really brutal. But uh, Beetleheim and, uh, and other people argue that it's very important for development to understand these and to process, not to avoid these things, but to understand the, the process. So yeah, there is, there has been a vogue from the time of Joseph Campbell to read myth, to put it together as a, a narrative. Mm -hmm. But I believe it's deeper. I think you have to go extra and say, well, actually, it's talking about the process of spiritual evolution. Well, even nursery rhymes uh, seem to deal with the dark side. And uh, not long ago, I did an interview uh, with a, a good friend about the filmmaker who has been an inspiration to me, Alejandro Jodorowsky, who I think is a spiritual filmmaker. And he made a point that you can't talk about spirituality without bringing in violence. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I think uh, th there's a certain type of, uh, now I'm not criticizing them, but there's a certain type of spiritual teacher, which I don't listen to really when, when they get, when they present the spiritual quest as an effort in kind of compliance and uh, of acquiescence and of being nice and, and, and that's what it's about. Being spiritual is being, about being inoffensive. Mm. And if you look at a lot of the great spiritual, Martin Luther King, for example, is, is a great, uh, is a great political, moral, spiritual leader. But he was interested in the mystery traditions. And I believe he was genuinely mystically inspired and from there we get we, we, we get the power there will always be a conflict there is a great conflict between the growth of spirituality and the growth of the material world it will always be there and we have to deal with it and it is a problem if we look at proper responses to violence proper responses to political repression a lot of we see that with gandhi for example mm -hmm. uh, we see that the mystics tends towards non-violent non -violent solutions. We can see it. I'm not saying Daniel O'Connell was a, 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 a mystic, but he, he did argue for the non-violent uh, mass movement response, mm -hmm. a mass of individuals. Uh, and he inspired Gandhi, for example, and he had close links with Frederick Douglass. Um, but 
violence is there. The, the reality is that spiritual people have to tend towards their own evolution. Mm -hmm. And then they have to convince other people that it's a valuable journey, that we're not just here for a short space of time, and that our actions have consequences. And violence is the most evident example of an ultra-simple solution to a particular context that causes great ramifications uh, in the future. So even on the... My father was born in 1918. So imagine that was the First World War was going, was, was going on. It's, it's, it's quite incredible. But it shows you it's not that long ago. So with the centenary of the, of the First World War, I've been, I was waiting for the great explanations. Well, this is why it happened. We've discovered that was this reason. We've discovered... But nothing was added, in my view. Nothing explained this, this mass slaughter of people. Um, and that has continued since. It's continued in Stalinist Russia and the Second World War, the Holocaust, etc. Et we, we know all about yeah. this. I mean, that's part of our, our legacy on this planet is, yeah, yeah. is, is that we have centuries of, of violence. Yeah. And I believe that if you make the commitment to materialism instead of without or without spirituality, it will lead to that result. Whether you come, whatever extreme you come from, if your, if your basis is the material world, yeah. you will have material solutions. Which are, which are often violent to, through the problems. And they, there, there is a vicious circle and a cycle of momentum that will per perpetuate them. So they do go together. Ma Mahatma Gandhi, without his mystical experience, without his investigation of the different traditions, wouldn't have been able to present an argument. So they, they do go together. Let me well. suggest an alternative, uh, though, about the relevance of violence on the mystical quest. Um, it has to do, I think, with the, the notion of initiation, the notion, uh, as, as I understand it from the writings of Rudolf Steiner, a mystical teacher, uh, there's a point in everyone's life when they're on the path where they have to confront their own dark side. I think that's what the dark night of the soul is, is, is looking at those violent impulses that exist within us, because after all, we're primates. Hmm. And yeah, yes, yes. There's two points to that. Mm -hmm. uh, the dark night of the soul can also be a phase where you have experienced something of the higher order and are afraid that you won't get more of it. There's a, <laughs> there's a kind of, oh, I've experienced something. And uh, so there's, there's a bit of like the yes. ambivalence with people who come back after near death experience. Yeah. I've got that, but here I'm back in this reality. And how do I manage here? Now, mm -hmm. my view of that is that we, if you take the, if we think the idea of the sea as the spirit and the land as the material world, we have to be amphibious. We have to be able to operate in both zones, mm -hmm. or we have to be able to master the foreshore and master this, or, 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 or commune with the sea or commune with the land as appropriate. But they are two different dimensions. So the mystics say that they're. Uh, there, there are, are, are two different uh, dimensions in that sense. So, um, the, the dark night, yeah, the dark night of the soul, certainly it could have that perspective. But for me, the spiritual evolution requires you deal with the ego. So I'm certainly not sitting here saying I have mastered the ego. I have, I'm an enlightened being. I'm not saying, but I am very aware that we have to deal with the ego. But that doesn't mean that we say abolish your ego become a nothing, become a jellyfish. It doesn't mean that. It means that you, you work on your ego. And in fact, 
most mystic leaders have an incredibly strong uh, ego. It's bulletproof, but they have to develop that. Mm -hmm. But they develop it by simplifying, by discarding, discarding elements which are unwanted. And we can see this metaphor in alchemy. Yeah, the, one of the key spirit, people forget that alchemy was a spiritual quest. So one of the key ideas was about distillation. So when you distill the raw material, you get spirit at the end, often, like in the alcoholic context, and you have discarded that which is not essential. In many ways, this is the analogy to, to the, the true spirit, the consciousness that we have uh, when we're born, that I believe is pre-existing, which is another issue. Um, so, yes, we have to deal with the ego, and there is an effort. We can see this in Vedantic philosophy, the idea that we have, and, and I share this view, uh, that there's, there's a, a true self and uh, a kind of false self, and by turning inwards, you see the true self, the tr true consciousness, which is not determined by your identity. It's not confined to Jeff or to Mishlove or to all the things you've done or to Berkeley or Parapsychology yeah. or Quest for or, it's not confined to that it's beyond that and it's transcendent so yes a key part the starting point is dealing with the ego and, and that also raises a, an interesting question about what, do you, what if you get ego or big ego and big big powers associated and that's that's a, a volatile d a domain uh, mm -hmm. well many people uh, get on a spiritual quest and they discover that uh, they do acquire powers and and yeah. that only feeds the ego yeah th there's two points if you look at and, and they're right on this uh, a lot of buddhist teachers say that when you in when you come to higher you acquire higher powers because of your concentration, your will, um, they will come, but they're not important. They can become distractions as well. So they are not the object. They are just a feature on the journey. They're just a place you pass by. They may, some of them may be relevant because we can see in the Catholic tradition, those powers we can see, for example, if I can think of Saint Clara, who had powers, she's a patron saint of television because she could be in two places at once. When she was sick once, she couldn't visit, but, but she sent a double of her to, mm -hmm. to, to the present. So she was seen to be a useful metaphor for television. So the point is that the Catholic tradition, and they have often scrupulously investigated these cases, um, as Michael Murphy has... Uh, yeah, has, uh, the, the, very, the, very rigorous investigation. The founder of the Asylum Institute has, yeah. has focused on his, his work. So they've investigated and they've found that these, these powers, and they're often seen to be associated with miracles or higher powers. Some of them can be there, some of them inspired, but they can also grow. But the thing is not to focus on them. So, and here is the difference between certain types of magic and certain types of mysticism. The link between mysticism and magic is very close. A lot of people that are interested in magic say, well, they're totally different than they wanted the vision. But if you look at the history of magic, and mysticism, they're indistinguishable. Certain paths have gone the different ways. And uh, if you look at figures like John Dee, who was Elizabeth I's uh, magician, if you like, he would have been accomplished in the domains of mathematics, science, linguistics, philosophy, uh, alchemy, uh, magic, and, and, and politics. Yes. Um, so he would have seen them all. Although he believed in God, uh, in some shape or form, uh, he was, there was no contradictions between these things. And if you look at early Christian Ireland, 
the, the, the coming of Christianity was associated with the Christians being able to demonstrate superior magic to the Druids' magical tradition. Whatever way they did it, there's a suggestion that early Catholicism and Christianity was more comfortable with some of these powers that are developed mm-hmm. through mystical tradition. And there was, a, there was a, a particular brand of Christianity that grew up in Ireland, which was more associated with nature, which is more associated with, with, with contemplation, and with more uh, open to animals and nature. Uh, it was different uh, and as, uh, associated with early monasticism. Well, there are many forms of mysticism. There's a mysticism of the intellect, the mysticism of service, the mysticism of compassion and love. I, I'm under the impression from your work that you really put compassion at the center. I, th- I think that, the, for me, the essence of the mystical quest is compassion. So that's, I, I'm, I'm sticking to that as, as the central value. So I'm not interested in mysticism that promises something else. I'm not interested in mysticism that promises you material wealth in this world. That, does, that would be a, a strange contradiction. Uh, and I'm certainly not interested in uh, darker forms of mysticism which are associated with neg- negative things. So if you look at the essence of Christianity or uh, in Islam or in Buddhism or in Taoism, there is an essential compassion. It's not a, a kind of weak compassion. Oh, I feel sorry for you, Jeffrey. It's not like that. It's, it's a deeper thing from the heart because some of the other types of compassion are, are substitutes from, from the brain and they're, and they're unsatisfactory in that sense. The idea of, of uh, compassion has to be related to the heart and uh, it, it, it's, a, it's an idea that must be brought to that level. So the heart is a fundamental aspect uh, of the spiritual quest and locating the the uh, the attention uh, to the heart. So compassion is critical. If in the other mystical quests you're promised something else, well, that that's not one I'm interested in. I'm not saying that it's not a type of mysticism. I describe it as a dark mysticism, where dark is the opposite to, to, to light. So in uh, the traditions, and that's why it's important to be careful it's, it's, it's important to be careful for younger people, especially. I'm sounding like a very old man here, but for younger people, when they, they're, they're told about the interesting things about the occult and about say, or seances and Ouija board, they're, they're dealing with very dangerous things. If you look at people who are informed on the spiritual path, you can't really play about with those things. They're not things to be toyed with. So we have to be careful. Uh, and there's a similar f- problem in relation to psychedelics and hallucinogenics. We have to be careful. There's a tendency for, I understand, uh, for younger people to want a buzz. They want a shortcut. They want a bzz. They want something quick. Uh, but really, the compassionate path is, is, is a slower one. Uh, but if you look at people, for example, who have had a near-death experience, and some people, uh, and people as well who... Uh, take DMT or ayahuasca or, or psilocybin, their compassion can be opened up that way. So I'm not saying that it can't be. I'm, uh, there's this, but I, I wouldn't start with that. But yes, the compassionate, the compassion, the heart path is the center. And the, you can't look at the life of any of the great mystics without seeing that compassion. So therefore, as well, if they are the, the, the person who is driven by that compassionate heart is not going to be led by the head. They're not going to get obsessed. 
with technical issues. They're not going to be assessed with details or fine distinctions that will interfere with that. And that's where the difference... Theological disputes. Yes. So often the literalists take over and we get a very literal view. The mystic should be committed to broad principles in relation to what's the most compassionate thing. It doesn't mean that they discard discipline, that they discard distinctions, they don't discard theology. But if you look within the Catholic Church, a lot of the orders which grew up, which were, were very rich and enriched the Church, were people who had kind of broken away. They had said, well, I don't like this something in the tradition which is not satisfying me. And I, I have stayed with monks in Ireland, for example, and they have a different perspective. They've gone a different path. You will find uh, I've stayed at Glenstall Abbey, for example, uh, in in Ireland, and uh, it was interesting, the people that were there, I met some interesting people there, and the monks are often very open. They're open to other ways of looking. In fact, I, I remember that the abbot, uh, Abbot Hederman, uh, he's quite well known in Ireland, and he had a, a seminar on the tarot. People like him are taking a cosmopolitan perspective, so they're not being very doctrinal. They're being open and respectful to other ways of looking at things, which is essentially a pragmatic view. Which well, the, the, it raises a question, though, of uh, what is the definition of compassion? I, I'm under the impression, if we go back to your original mm. thought, that the, one of the main values of mysticism is as an antidote to existential despair. Yeah. That, that first and foremost, one needs to have compassion for oneself. You, you have to start off with yourself. Essentially, uh, one has to... We, we, example is the best teacher. So, for example, in your personal journey, um, there's foundational issues or foundational context that I can see. The idea of, of being present, for example, mm -hmm. is, is a very important idea. So... You have found that yourself. You are driven to that. You're inspired to, to focus on that issue. And through that, you have created a pathway. And that pathway has created a legacy that other people, you've created a garden that other people can access through the, the amount of interviews you've done. Going back to, it's incredible that you've interviewed people like Terence McKenna and Francis Crick and Robert Anton Watson and great uh, Nobel uh, laureates mm. and people that are investigating the, the fringes of science, the psychedelics. So, so you've done that, and uh, interesting people who are, who are like the PK man, for example. So you have you've become a teacher in that sense. So your personal journey has given the point about the hero that goes away. They bring back something, whether people want it or not, is up to them. The point about the mystic journey is the same. The mystic goes out on the quest. Through their own personal quest, they come back with something. It doesn't mean that the people, it doesn't mean that people follow it. Martin Luther King says it doesn't matter what your religion is, and he wants to see the, he could see the, the Catholic children and the Protestant children playing together, et cetera, et cetera, in the future, in the Red Hills of Georgia, uh, uh, black and white, irrespective. It doesn't matter because people like that see beyond superficial identification. So my point would be that example is, is, is the teacher and, well, your work has, has manifested that. You can tell something, people, but if you don't walk the walk, if you don't demonstrate it, uh, and also I do think that you have to think about what compassion is and there is a wider sense of compassion that people who have had mystical experiences 
report and that is about understanding more so it's about breaking down limitations on their own perception mm -hmm. so in some ways it's about comprehension and associate with that is feeling uh, and about being able to identify so in, in the in the catholic context you have saint francis understanding animals and having an affinity with animals we see that in irish christianity as well so uh, it's a wider sense of perception of beings similar to oriental views mm -hmm. so um the, the compassion is not oh yes you've suffered that i i feel sorry for you i'm going to help you that that's not the end of it uh the compassion is based on accepting yourself as a spiritual individual and accepting the other person as a spiritual individual yeah. who needs often spiritual comfort and to give you an example if you look at uh, christopher hitchens who's a very clever man I don't. A famous atheist. Famous atheist. He used to be a Trotskyist, uh, uh, as he said. Whether he, he always used to be is another, is another <laughs> debate. Um, and he's a very clever man who persuaded a lot of people with powers of persuasion and a certain kind of bullion, uh, bullion demeanor. So he would, the people that he would see as very bad people were people like Mother Teresa. He says, well, she wasn't interested in poverty. And there, there's a clear example. People like Mother Teresa would, see their work as spirit to spirit and whereas people like Hitchens has a materialistic view of the world so they're only going to interpret goodness compassion on material on material mm. basis you come to different places spiritual spiritual comfort is very important and the meaning of life if, if we take Viktor Frankl and uh, his his statement that if you're if everything else has been taken away from you, the only thing you have left is the power to decide how you react to the situation, whether positively or not. And that, that betrays a spiritual, a spiritual disposition because the, you often, you often ask how people endured great hardship, uh, and how people, even in great hardship, could sometimes smile, laugh, dance in, in horrendous situations. And the spiritual path uh, promises more than the, the material world in that mm -hmm. sense. And I, I think it's important. But you do come to different places. Well, it, it strikes me that what we're getting at here is the kind of tension that exists between the realization of, of ourselves as spirit, which to me means like the ground of being, something that connects us all, independent of our life story. Yes. Completely. Yeah. And at the same time, we, we don't lose our life story. Spirit is an insufflation of cosmic consciousness. So the question is, well, one, do you believe you have a spirit? And it's interesting, if you ask people the question, they begin to say, well, I don't know, or maybe I do, or do I have a, you know, because this is a, this is the feature of the modern age. Yeah. Now, now, scientists will say, of course, they have to, you have to prove it, but from a legal perspective, I would argue that the presumption throughout history has been that we are spiritual beings. That has there throughout all of history. And with the Enlightenment, uh, which is a kind of perversion of the idea of enlightenment, which, which is a thing that they do quite a bit, they take a spiritual concept and they turn it into a secular version, which yeah. doesn't deliver the goods as much. But it's kind of, it's a kind of magic trick that they do, an illusory <laughs> trick. <laughs> So uh, the enlightened, the enlightenment uh, offered through scientific means 
doesn't necessarily guarantee you that you'll get the enlightenment offered through a path of spiritual evolution. But, uh, but the idea of, I, how do you insufflation. say Insufflation. So, yeah. So, uh, if, if you have a spirit, then the question is, well, where did the spirit come from? My belief, and I share it with a, a few scientists uh, these days, is that consciousness is fundamental. We know that the principle of that consciousness is fundamental has been realized, particularly by quantum physicists, and that, that consciousness may be the element which, uh, which is in nature, that, which, which, which is there, which is pervasive. Mm. And in some ways, I would argue that the spirit is a kind of quantum of, I'm not using the, the quantum physio, because I'm not talking about the scientific terms, but by analogy, that we are the measure, a measure of uh, consciousness which comes into being here. And the purpose of it is to evolve. So, insufflation means to blow into. So, spiritual consciousness, I believe, comes into us. Now, this is consistent with notions of reincarnation, but even in Christian terms, you have to say, where did the soul or spirit come mm -hmm. from? And early Christians seem to have been opened to different ideas uh, and certain ideas within, uh, there were certain groups. It wasn't as um, monolithic as it seems to be afterwards. Uh, they were open to reincarnation, and we can look at the various sects that existed who had different conceptions, wider conceptions. If you look at the Gospel of St. Thomas and the, and the Gospels that are not accepted to be in the canon, they are far more similar to Vedantic philosophy, mm -hmm. for example. We can see the parallels. They're in many ways more acceptable to, more understandable to people who are less literalistic. So I, I think there's a mistake to be too dogmatic about what the canon is. Mm -hmm. But I think when I read your use of the term insufflation, it had more to do with the here and now. It had to do with uh, taking our life, our historical persons who had a birth and a death and, and parents and a career and a life history and allowing consciousness, pure consciousness, the ground of being, the ultimate mm -hmm. transcendent mm -hmm. awareness to, to fill our history. Human rights developed on the basis of certain principles, which were often Judeo-Christian principles, mm -hmm. and the same in the Islamic world, they, they, they grew, the legal principles grew from a, a base which was revelatory. So, um, if you begin to take, uh, C.S. Lewis pointed this out, that if you take away the claim to a higher dimension as a source of your laws, you will end up with objectives which will end up with the fascism or extreme communism which will deny the rights of the individual. Now, scientists are in danger of making the same mistake. They say, well, we can prove that free will is non-existent. We can prove that consciousness uh, doesn't exist. You know, some of the people say that. Yeah, well, I interviewed Marvin Minsky, one of the founders of cybernetics, who hmm. said to me on video, it's still available, you should be proud of being no more than a piece of meat. Yeah, well... My my kids now are into various uh, comics and films, you know, all the X Men, <laughs> all the Marvel. Yeah. Uh -huh. all that. Uh, so it's it through all those. It's interesting through all the comics. I've gone back and the mystical stories. I look at Doctor Strange. Yeah, I've looked at them again. Sometimes, if you appreciate the mystical journey, well, then you can go back and say, "Hold on a second, this is filling." So you see it in Doctor Strange. Yeah. You see it in Batman. But another interesting thing is, we see the mad scientist. 
Mm-hmm. It's ubiquitous. Yeah. The mad scientists. Lex Luthor. There's loads of them. There's yeah. a, I have a big long list yeah. of them. So they're mad scientists. So so these imaginative The intellect people, getting carried away with itself. And the ego. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and here's the here's the thing. Uh if you look back at in biblical terms, now I know the devil can cite scripture for his purpose, as they say in, uh, in the Merchant of Venice, I think, but the uh if you look back at Genesis, and there's how you know the don't eat the apple from the tree of knowledge. And you say, well, that's a difficult thing. Well, why not? Knowledge is not, yeah. you know, the tree of life. And, and there's a conflict. Yes. And it's oversimplified. My view of that is that the suggestion, whether you want to call it a myth, a metaphor, a lesson, a parable, whatever, or, or, or if you want to take it as a literal truth, whatever, you still have to interpret what that means. And my view is that the suggestion there was that you have a path, you have a quest for knowledge, and you have a quest for spiritual evolution. I believe that it's the same story. And the suggestion is that if you say, well, knowledge is what I want, knowledge is what I want, the point is that knowledge is not an end in itself, it's a means to an end, and it will never be satisfied. Knowledge will always be knowledge of something else, and we have Gödel's incompleteness theorem, will never be satisfied. So I hear people like uh, Donald Hoffman are very interested in his views of consciousness and it seems to me that it mirrors it mirrors the spiritual traditions. Uh, uh, but I'm, I'm a bit sceptical about people now that scientists are coming to take the lessons because they can't appropriate it without the means. So he's talking very co- very coherently and, and, and accurately about mathematical models which will prove certain elements in his theory uh, but there'll always be another mathematical uh, model which is necessary yeah. and he, we don't live on mathematical models alone he's the one who suggests that our our consciousness is not an accurate reflection of reality that it's it's more like the icons we see on our computer screen yes yeah so I'll have to say, with respect to him, he's not original in that. He may be original in the. I don't want. I don't mean any offence. He's, he's fantastic uh, man and, uh, and very interesting. And I have listened to a lot of his talks. But uh, so he says that what happens through the process of evolution is that we get certain icons uh, which represent reality. So it's similar to ideas you have in, in the Matrix. It's very similar to Gnostic mm. teachings. It's very similar. This is not the real world. But that's the essence of mysticism. Mysticism has always said, this is not the true reality. He makes some interesting points about that. He says, when you run loads of models through computers with, with, with loads of different scenarios about uh, creature or, or entities in this context, who see reality as it truly is, he said they become extinct. Mm-hmm. So I, I can understand the point. So you might say, well, well, why do we want to see different reality? But that's not the point. We want to see certain aspects of reality which are important for spiritual evolution. And uh, I, I'm concerned that if you say that we're just conscious agents, it's, it's, I, I agree that it's a very accurate description of what's going on, but... I don't trust scientists. I don't trust because scientists, unfortunately, can. I'm not, I'm not saying about him. Great respect for him, great contribution, and all, but but you have to accept that within the institution of science, talking about institutions, there are plenty of people who are guns for hire. For example, you can give the research mm-hmm. money, they'll get the results, you know, and also they get money because they want 
they want a product mm-hmm. and they want to be able to monetize it in some way. And that's a danger because you might extract mm-hmm. the good stuff and... So you're pointing to a kind of conflict between science and mysticism. There's a, for me, there's a big conflict. Now, there's a, there's a huge conflict. I, I believe that mysticism has come to a lot of valuable insights that science is n- now beginning to say, hold on a second, this is useful here. They have stuff that they have learned. So we can learn off them and extract from them and utilize it. Because scientists talk about, oh, knowledge, increase in knowledge, as if they had no personal interest, as if they didn't profit from mm. the thing itself. So we can't, uh, scientists, in, in many ways, they, they have, they don't have, they're, they're ethical free in some sense. They don't care that they mm-hmm. will, they will focus on their curiosity to, and bring it to wherever it, it, it came to. Like H.G. Wells, when he wrote his book, anticipating uh, the atomic bomb, he believed that when the atomic bomb went off, which he kind of predicted, the scientists would come together and rule the world because people would be too afraid. But scientists will go on to continue for the next thing. If you look at nanotechnology, for example, We'll, we'll, uh, we'll have the problem before we begin to discuss the ethical context. Yeah. And for example, all the problems now that they come along with solutions for, they fail to see that they have been part of the cycle of creating those problems. Because uh, m- many mystics in our spiritual life, they wouldn't have invested so much effort in the facilitation of material things. So scientists are very good mm-hmm. at criticizing other institutions like Dawkins criticizing religion and then taking no responsibility themselves for things they have, have created. They don't, they don't see, and especially you can understand how that would be the case if they don't have any idea of what right and wrong is. Well, you know, I, I, I know that you know I'm yeah. a parapsychologist. That is yeah. technically a science. I think it's very intimately related to mysticism. How, how do you respond to that? Well, I'm here to check you out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm investigating to see whether you're a hostage. I'm not, I'm not really. so, but there is a question in, in parapsychology, and you have made this distinction. Uh, I've learned a lot from looking at, uh, at your various programs when I was, because it's a great source. Uh, of information in relation to parapsychology and spirituality. But take the example of remote viewing. So we can approach remote viewing from, there's many mystics, many Buddhists, practitioners who can can be in different places, who can see things from afar, who can remote view. And then there are people who are not mystical, who have those, or who can develop those same powers. Now, I'm not saying that they're not mystical, they're not spiritual, but there's two different groups. Mm-hmm. So science can come along and appropriate elements or confine it to that context. And undoubtedly it will. It will do, yeah. yeah. So th- 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 there's, a great, there's a great conundrum here. There's a point at which you, uh, 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 a philosophical question about what happens if, say, your legacy is, <laughs> is a free resource, a garden for... For science to mine, and uh, I'm not saying yeah. this, this happened, but, but you understand the point that that science says, well, parapsychology is pseudoscience, doesn't even recognize, it, but it's going to be very willing to appropriate the benefits. Yeah. And I'm sure, as you have anticipated, that in future they will have a lot more respect for it because the methodology is often better in parapsychology because they have they have to be better um uh, and you can see like the institute of noetic science and that they're very very diligent about the scientific methods mm. they used to but they often 
Uh, and what what is interesting when you look at those scientists, and I know you, uh, I listened to a lady, uh, I can't remember her name, talking about quantum physics here with you uh, recently, and she came from... Uh, Ruth Kastner. Uh, yes, uh, yeah. exactly. And I was impressed with when a scientist has humility about things that they mm -hmm. don't, because they should be. They, they always say, oh, well, we need proof for things, but sometimes they can be arrogant. But when you have that humility, yeah. uh, that gives me hope for the future. I'm discovering from this conversation is, is that this is like the never-ending story. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Well, you're talking to an Irish man, and so <laughs> my objective here is to bewilder you. So, yeah, but it is, uh, but I think... As you talk about it, you begin to come to certain themes and they become, and sometimes it's necessary to revisit the point yeah. to, to, to emphasize it. Uh, That's why we keep doing new programs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, James, Tunney, this, this has been a delight. I'm uh, very happy that you're here with me in Albuquerque. We're going to have many more conversations yeah, yeah. before you leave. I think uh, our viewers will be quite surprised at uh, some of the topics we cover. Uh, so, Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thank you. And thank you for being with us.